Lord, we do thank you for this evening. We ask you to bless this time for us. Give us a wonderful study and get, show us what you would want us to see from all of this. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Zechariah chapter 14. We should finish it up today. We've been in, right in the middle of the second coming of Christ and the battle that was going on at that point. Jerusalem was under siege. Jesus came and touched down on Mount Olivet. Mount Olivet split into two and he's going to establish his kingdom. So starting at verse 12. And this shall be the plague wherein the Lord shall smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet and their eyes shall consume away in their holes and their tongues shall consume away in their mouth. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them and they shall lay hold everyone on on the hand of his neighbor and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor and Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the heathen around about shall be gathered together gold and silver and apparel in great abundance and so shall the plague of the horses of the mule of the camel of the ass and of the beast that are that shall be in these tents as this plague all right when Jesus comes this battle will be over very quickly, and this is kind of an interesting description that he gets. Many people have looked at this and said that it's a nuclear blast, but Jerusalem isn't touched in the middle of this, so it can't be a nuclear blast. This is God doing something that is going to be equivalent to the description of a nuclear blast. And it says, he shall smite them that while they're still standing, their flesh will be consumed and literally... This means melt away. As they're standing there, their skin is literally going to melt off their body. Their eyes will melt out of their sockets and their tongues will, you know. And this is why they say, you know, this really much sounds like an, a nuclear, you know, destruction. But again, Israel isn't destroyed and they're right there outside Israel and their surroundings. So this is something that God is doing. Yeah, but see, it's going outward toward them and not being it, so it's, it, it won't be a nuclear blast. <laughs> uh, because we don't have that much control of a nuclear weapon. Now, God might have a chance to have a nuclear weapon that can only go one direction. But, it, you know, when we've seen these type of things in display, you know, it literally shows their skin just melting off their, off their, off their bodies. And this is what it's described as. When Jesus comes and he speaks... They literally, from what from Zechariah's description, they melt away. Uh, you know, and you know, this is kind of an interesting thing about God's power. I think how many times do we not recognize the power of God and how powerful He really is? You know, uh, and I talk to a lot of different people. I've got a a man that I've been talking to, and it's kind of interesting because his view of God is so limited, and I know he doesn't believe in a small God or anything, but when, as we've talked about things, he'll acknowledge what I say, but his theology is based on a small God. And we have to be careful that our theology matches who God is. You know, so much of Christianity believes that Salvation comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, which is true. But most people believe that nobody could be saved before Jesus actually came and died because they've got a God that's locked into time somehow the way we are as human beings. 
But Jesus in Revelation was called the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And the determinant council, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit got together and said, we're going to create man, they're going to fall. Jesus, will you die for him? He said, yes. As soon as he said yes, the Father said, okay, mankind who hasn't even been created yet has been bought, has been redeemed. Why would he do that? Well, number one, he's not inside, he's not inside times. He's outside of time. So he said, okay, you said yes, it's already done. He said, yes, I will. And God says, it is, you have already died. Even though he hadn't come and died in time, he had already died in the Father's mind because he said yes. Why? Because God cannot lie. As soon as Jesus said yes, no, no matter what would happen, he would die. So when man was created, God could deal with man through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ right from the beginning, even though he hadn't died yet. You know, and we've got to get this idea of how big is our God? How big is God? And God is not stuck in time. And I've said, you know, when I was growing up, I understood the omniscience of God, that God was everywhere. And it was that simple. But as I've gotten more sophisticated in my thinking about dimensions and time and all of that, I realized that God is also in every time at the same time. So he is everywhere physically. He is in every time because only he is outside of time to be able to be in all of time. And he encompasses all that, and he's outside of whatever might be on beyond that. So God, when he said Jesus died, said, I can now deal with man as, as Jesus has died, even though he had not already died yet. Just as when we get saved and God says we are perfect, how does the Father see us? Outside of time as we will be. Not as we are becoming, from our perspective, we are becoming perfect, over a long period of time, but God says, you are perfect, and he already sees us as we will be, even though we're not there yet. You know, we are so finite in our thinking that we've got to get a bigger God, and here we're seeing a God that can do something that we can't even imagine. We have no weapon that'll, that'll create this kind of power without being destroying everything around it. And God says, he's just using it to go out and destroy in this enemy to a point where they melt away. And I can't even imagine what that'll be like. How, and you know, you figure that there has to be horrible pain in this death. They're attacking God's people. And it doesn't tell us how quick it is. But they're melting away and that's got to be painful. Even if it's quick. <laughs> and all of this is going in and it says they will be consumed or dissolve, literally dissolve, rot, rot away, melt away, whatever term you want to use, and it happens quickly. Uh, because it says, while they are still standing, this happens. And you can just picture almost the, the guy's marching into in the battle, and all of a sudden his body just melts away from him while he's standing there. And it'll be a very quick decisive win. The enemy of God just melts away. And uh, we haven't seen that kind of victory from God in any other place. He's, he's swallowed people whole. He sent fire to consume people. He's done all kinds of things. And this might just be the type of fire that Elisha had on the, Elijah had on the Mount Carmel when the fire fell from heaven and consumed the, the altar and, the, and the, the, the sacrifice on the altar, the wood, and the stone. 
God is very powerful. And we as Christians tend to forget God's power. We see God as this loving, kind, merciful individual. And he is on one side, but he's also holy, justice, just and very powerful. And here he starts showing his power. And there's a spot, place in, in Revelation where it says there was a silence for the space of a half hour in heaven. Before that time, it talks about Jesus as the Lamb of God, quiet, meek, easy to get along with. After that, we see him as the Lion of Judah. So there's a pregnant moment in heaven where God, where Jesus changes from the easy Lamb that loves, you know, that's going to be kind to people to the Lion of Judah, who is the king that says, I'm taking my world back. He bought the world back at the cross. Adam and Eve gave the title deed to the earth to Satan with their sin. Jesus bought it back at Calvary and will take it back and on his second return and saying, okay, you've had, you've had enough. I'm taking back my possession that I bought. And we've had this whole process going on and it just shows you how patient God is to let things work themselves out completely. And we've said this over and over. The whole tribulation period is God saying, people, pay attention. Pay attention. I'm showing you my power so that you will turn to me. Now, we know that most people will not turn to him. But it's his last-ditch effort to get people to say, I want you to come back to me. And we know that he does this. He does it in our lives. When we misbehave, he gives us hard times so that we're trying to get our attention, saying, you're not following the right way. And he's done it with the world. We see it all through the, all through the scriptures. When people sin, he usually gives them generations to before he judges. America has been continually falling from its state of grace that it started in to the place now where it is so sinful that God's going to have to do strong disciplines for us to try to respond. And we know that it probably won't happen. If we are truly in the end times like I think we are, there won't be a great uh, revival. There will be pockets of revival. People will turn to God. But we're headed for a hard time. Jesus is coming back soon. And we can see the evidence all around us. We're seeing Israel, nations come against Israel. There's been this small period of time when Israel has been looked at fairly positive, but even during that period of time, anti-Semitism has been growing around the world. And it's going to continue getting worse because Satan wants to destroy Israel. And more and more of the Israelites will head back to Israel because that is their home. And it's amazing if you talk to Jewish people, most of them at least want to visit and many of them want to return to Israel because especially if they live in places where anti-Semitism is, is big, they're going, I want, to go, I want to go where it's, you know, all I have to do is worry about rockets being fired in. I don't have to worry about my neighbors. <laughs> you know, I'll just go back where, where the, in our home country. And I think God is putting, them, putting that desire into them because he says in the scriptures he's going to call his people back to home from around the world. And we're seeing that they want to go back. They want to go back to Israel. And in our case, it's just a practical decision. It's not because they're righteous or anything. That's just, this is the home for Israel. 
This is where I can be a Jew and not have to be worrying about what my neighbors are going to do to me because all my other neighbors are Jews and, they, and it's a practical reason they want to return. But I also think it's God putting it in their heart saying, I need all of my people at the same place. You know, not that he does, but he wants, because he said he was going to bring them back home. And so we're seeing that happen, and this battle is going to be horrendous for the enemy. Now, the good news for us is we're following in his, in his coat skirts, basically, following behind him and watching this battle as he speaks. He just speaks, and everything falls apart. And we think about this. The scriptures tell us, you know, if you know anything about science, an atom should not exist. You've got a center of it with like charges called protons and neutrons, and they should blow apart by every rule of science that we know. And yet they hold together. You've got electrons going around the proton, the positive center that don't collapse into it. You know, our laws of science and electricity say that that thing should fall apart every single time. Explode or collapse one, thing or one way or the other, and yet it holds together. And science has a really wonderful answer for it. It's, it's, it's um, what do they call it? Atomic, atomic power or something. You know, there's a, a force, an atomic force that holds them together. They have no idea what it is, no clue what it is, but they say there's, there's a force that holds it together. Well, the Bible tells us that everything is held together by God. So we know as Christians exactly what holds the atom together. God could just say, okay, my enemy, I'm not holding you together anymore. And they totally dissolve away. At the end of the millennial kingdom, he's going to say, I'm not holding anything in the world together, and it'll totally fall apart as he creates a new, destroys this current one, and a new heaven and new earth comes together. He'll destroy it in fire, which is a perfect example of God saying, I'm just going to let every atom in the entire, entire universe just collapse or explode, and that would be quite an explosion. And we, we, can, we, we separate one atom <laughs> and have a huge explosion. God's going to explode all the atoms at one time in the entire universe at the end of the millennial kingdom and start all over. There's a definite big bang. Yeah, yeah. Big bang into nothing, <laughs> not into recreation. Not what they think. Uh, so big problem. And when this battle comes in verse 13, and it shall come to pass in that day that there will be a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them. And tumult is confusion, turmoil. And you can almost imagine when your entire armies, the entire armies of the world, remember, have gathered against Israel, and in a split second, the entire armed forces of the Antichrist are destroyed. And you think about what kind of problem that will be for the rest of the world. You know, if we went into battle and all of a sudden our entire army was wiped out in basically a blink of an eye, it will cause great confusion. What power is this that has come against us? And if you're a science fiction type person, you can think of all these different alien invasion things where the aliens totally wipe out <laughs> the armies that have come against them. This is the kind of picture that we have. And it's not an alien in this case, but it is the God of the universe coming in and saying, you're done. You're gone. 
being, being victorious and causing confusions in whatever governments are left out there. You know, they just lost all of their forces in a, in a second. And it's going to be something that is going to cause great turmoil. And then it says, and they shall lay every man a hand on his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. It's an amazing thing that God pictures all these battles where people, where the enemies kill themselves. And I don't know how he does it. I don't know if he causes confusion or they're or fear makes them see something that is not there, because we know how fear can make people paranoid. Uh, all of a sudden, all their buddies are di you know, dying around them, and all of a sudden, they start just attacking each other. And we saw this in many scriptures all through the time where God says, and the enemy, you know, we have Hezekiah, he goes out to battle, and, the, and his battle plan is really good. God says, put the priest and the, and the singers up front, and when you get to the hill of the battle, look down, and the people are all fighting each other. You know, and it's not uncommon in the scriptures to see that the enemy were fighting each other. Gideon and his 300, and his 300 men surrounded the army, caused confusion, and they started fighting each other you know, and killing off each other. Gideon and his, and his men didn't have to kill anybody. And, and then when the enemy ran, they ran after. The 300 ran after them, killing whoever they could catch up with. You know, but it's not uncommon for the enemy when God gets involved to start killing each other. And then, if that wasn't enough, then all of a sudden it says in verse 14, Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem. So they get a little bold all of a sudden. You know, the enemy's been defeated. They're melted away. The rest of them are fighting each other. And then they decide, we're going to go attack. <laughs> we're going to get in the middle of this battle and we're going to win. And it says, and the heathen around them shall be gathered together, and the wealth of the heathen shall be gathered together. Israel will become the center of everything. They will gather all the wealth of the world to them because Jesus is ruling. And this is something that has always happened during battles, the gathering of the, of the, the spoil and... They will get a silver abundance and apparel in abundance and everything else they say is going to get in great abundance. Everything is going to come to them. And it says, so shall the plague of the horses and the mule and the, and the camel and the donkeys and all the beasts that are in this land, so shall this, this plague literally, that means slaughter. I don't know why they put plague in there, but this is slaughter. Everything will be destroyed during that period of time. Now, we, I kind of wonder at this point, you know, why do they talk about donkeys and all that stuff and, and camels and everything at a time at the end of the tribulation period? And there's lots of different reasons. Maybe it's because they did not know how to describe the, the mechanized vehicles that they saw. Could also possibly be, and I'm, I'm, and I'm going to speculate on this, Everything that we have runs on electromagnetics and computers now. There could be an EMP weapon used during that period of time that wipes out all mechanized vehicles so that we are literally back to old-fashioned transportation by this time. And that's speculation, but we can understand how that could happen. You know, and this is one of the fears that people have right now because every vehicle that we have is run by a computer unless you have a car that's over 20 years old, 20, 25 years old. Every vehicle is run by a computer. 
And if you have a very, very old one that is fully mechanical, you'd be able to use your car or your vehicle uh, after an EMP weapon, but almost, and this whole idea of cash for clunkers and let's get rid of all the old cars was to get rid of the old cars so that we could be controlled. Not theoretically, you know, it was handled much higher up than, than people. Satan is trying to get people in a controlled place. So it is possible that we literally are at a place where these are the, the transportation of choice back then because that's all they have. And I'm only speculating uh, because we know that it could happen. Uh, you know, because it's hard to try to say that they were picturing camels and horses as, as cars. <laughs> You know, uh, other than the fact that they saw them transporting people, you know, but, you know, how would you describe a car if you were in them? I would probably say chariots more than, and carriages more than I would say these kind of animals. So I'm only throwing that out. I mean, I'm not going to hold dogmatically to the fact that that may happen, but it is interesting that all through the tribulation period, we see animals named as transportation, not what we would consider in our day and age as transportation. And I would not doubt highly at all that there wouldn't be some form of EMP weapon isolating people, making it hard to travel. And uh, so I throw that out for what it's worth. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but I'm just kind of curious. Everywhere we see the end days, it talks about animals as transportation. Uh, so take that for what it's worth. But those are going to be included. Whatever transportation are in there, they're going to be included in the slaughter. They're going to be, they're going to be annihilated. Uh, so whatever it is that, that is attacking this, making the flesh melt away, is going hit to the, hit the animals at this point as well and cause confusion in them as they go forward. And this is just a very powerful picture of the power of our God. You know, and we really need to get this idea. I mean, we think of him as creator, and that's great. He created, and he did. But, you know, how many times has God done really powerful things. He split the Red Sea and had the children of Israel walk on dry land. And even at the shallowest part of the Red Sea, which is probably where they crossed, we're still talking about two and 300 feet of water that had to be moved at the deepest spot of, the, of that land peninsula. That's a lot of water being moved, and it's a lot of dry land for them to walk on. You know, it wasn't mud, it wasn't sand, they walked on dry land. So it's a miracle. You know, he fed them for 40 years in the wilderness with manna. Every morning, except for the Sabbath, there was manna laying out on the ground for them to pick. And clothes never wore out either. Clothes didn't wear out, they were given water. And they still Yeah, they still complained. <laughs> and complained. And complained. You know, he guided them. He gave them victories in battle. When Korah and, and, the, and those rebelled against uh, Moses and Aaron, God opened the land, swallowed them up, and closed the land up again. Yeah. Uh, and people go, well, that was quite an earthquake. Yeah, it was quite an earthquake, but it happened just when God needed it to happen, and it swallowed them up and closed up again. Yeah. He, split, he split the... Jordan River at flood stage so that the people could cross the Jordan River. Yeah. 24-hour daylight. You know, uh, the king turned the clock back by 10 degrees, or 6 degrees, excuse me. Uh, 
you know, so that he could prove that who he was. All these things that God has done, and you know, we can't forget that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's got another big thing coming for Israel when he delivers them as he leads us into the thousand-year millennial reign. And then he relengthens man's lifespan during that period of time. Now, how far does he relengthen it? We don't know. It just the, the scripture says that if somebody that dies at 100 will be considered a child. So I'm sure that it means six or 700 years at least, or at least three or 400 years. If a child is still at 100, you know, at least three or 400 years that he's going to expand the lifespan back to. And he's God. He could make it back to the eight or 900 that he created man in the first place with. The power of our God, we need to understand. We, we sell God short so many times in our, in our thought process. And we need to be able to start really understanding the power of God and where he stands. Because he says, I'm going to bring this battle, you know, this battle is a short, short battle. He speaks and it's over. That's what we're told in Revelation. And here we get a greater description of how that he speaks and they melt away. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, and I almost think of things like uh, Aaron's sons who were in, misbehaved in the, in the very first day the tabernacle was open and they tried offering incense of their, of their own outside what God told them and God burnt them with fire. I almost pictured this kind of fire. You know, they just melted away. Gone. You know, we don't ever think of God as that, as that vengeful. But, you know, we need to be careful with that because even in the New Testament that people want to think about a loving God, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the church about their gift. Technically, they said you lied to God, and he struck them dead. Now, he didn't melt them away, but he, they were struck dead for lying, trying to get credit from the church for something they didn't do. And God struck them dead. We need to be careful. God is still out there and saying... I want honesty amongst my people. I want service amongst my people. Now, that doesn't mean he strikes us dead for just making a mistake, but these guys purposely lied and tried to get glory from the church. And God said, fine, you want it? it you're, you, this is your life. You're done. God still has those powers He's still the same God. He still makes miracles. He still does miracles. He still heals people. He still, everything we see in the Bible, he still does. And it's an amazing thing. On Pentecost, after they were in, uh, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, what was the first thing they did? They started preaching in different languages. And everybody heard their own language. Now, I don't know if they actually spoke a different language or people heard a different language, and you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how it worked. It was a miracle. I know a pastor who doesn't believe in speaking in tongues, and yet there was a time that he was preaching and he spoke in a different language. You know, uh, and he still didn't believe in tongues afterwards. <laughs> Even though he had spoken and everybody's looking at it and say, you spoke, you spoke in perfect Finnish, he still didn't believe in, believe in the idea of God giving the gift of tongues. Did he, speaking, he, he thought he was speaking English. Just as I believe the disciples thought that they were speaking Hebrew, and yet 
And that's why I say I don't know if people heard a different language or if they God literally spoke a different language, and it really does not matter because the gospel message went out in a different language. And I don't care how God does it. If I'm out there speaking in one language and somebody else is hearing a different language, it doesn't matter to me. Or does he change my words into their, into their language? I don't, it doesn't matter. It's still both a miracle. And it's no less a miracle whichever way he does it. So we need to be able to understand God is still the same. He still has all the power. He can drop fire from heaven. He can, he can multiply food. He can split oceans. He can cause plagues. He can do whatever he wants because he is still God. He can protect people in the fire. He can protect people from poison. He can protect people from all kinds of things. And you know what? He has. You know, it's an amazing thing when you know the story of John, the disciple John. You know, he died of old age, but it wasn't out of lack of trying. They tried to boil him in oil, and it, it didn't affect him. They tried to poison him. It didn't affect him. They sent him to the Isle of Patmos, which was an insane asylum for the criminally insane, the murderers. Fully expecting that this man, this disciple of Christ, would be killed on the island of Patmos, and they didn't kill him. You know, God put his hand on him. And all through the scriptures and all through history, we see miraculous happenings. We see people being raised from the dead. We see being people protected from fire, electrocution, from poisonings, from all kinds of things, because God still works miracles. And we have to really understand it. We here in America kind of, we're too sophisticated and scientific, even unfortunately Christians, to think of God doing miracles. Even when we see a miracle, sometimes we kind of doubt that we saw the miracle. And this is something that is very important for us to understand, that God is still in the miracle business. And he will do it when we expect it. But he's not going to do it on command. God never did it on, on command because somebody said to. This is why I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's answer when they told Nebuchadnezzar, when he said, who can deliver you? They said, our God is able. But whether he does or whether he doesn't, we will serve the Lord. When they were thrown into that fire, they fully expected to die. They knew God could rescue them, but they weren't sure that he was going to rescue them. And in their case, he rescued them. But in not every case did God rescue them. <laughs> you know, and so we need to be prepared for just that. God can and will sometimes, and God can, and sometimes he says, I'm going to let you die. And... Well, yeah, I mean, dying is really nice. We get to go home to where we belong in the first place. So, and this is the key for us as Christians. Do we truly believe that when we die, we go, we go to heaven? If we do, then we should not fear death in any way, shape, or form because that is our, that is our path home. And we have all kinds of hymns that talk about crossing the, crossing the Jordan River from, from life to death is what that is a picture of. I've crossed over, and now I'm entering into the promised land, heaven. Is that really our view? When, when a Christian dies, is it really our view that they have gone home? I love this, the idea of calling a memorial service for a Christian a homegoing service. That's what the church that I spent most of my life in called them, homegoing. They went home. 
And that has had a deep impact in my life, saying, Christians have gone home. Yes, that's a wonderful place to, to have gone. Yeah. And, you know, Psalms tells us precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints because they've come home. He's not sad when somebody dies. He says, my child came home. <laughs> They're no longer down there where they don't belong. They're up here with me where they belong. So we need to get this position of are we truly believing God's word? Do I fully in all of my aspects say that God's word is true and live that way? And that's what all of his tests in our life are all about. Do we truly believe his word? Do we truly believe him? And are we going to fully trust him? And it's not easy because when we think we do, he'll give us a test that really tests whether we really believe it or not. And the more you believe it and the more you're sure of it, the harder the test will be. Now, I am sure that I'm not wanting to take the test of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Walking into it, being cast into a fire. I think if God put me in there, he'd give me the grace to be able to do it. And I've always wondered, I want to think, you know, when I stand up there and somebody challenges me with life or death for God, that I would say, all right, kill me. But you know, we really don't know until we get there what our answer will be. I'm hoping that I'm strong enough in my belief that says God is going to take me home if I die to say yes. But you know, it's a pretty powerful thing when you're actually facing it. And this is why I love Fox's Book of Martyrs and different other events where we see Christians standing up for Christ, even in death. And the most recent one that I remember, and it was several years ago now, was when the Coptic... Uh, Egyptian Christians were, were executed on the beach by the Muslims and their heads were chopped off as they were praying and singing to praise to God. And that was impactful because it was video. And it made all of the things that you've read all your life saying, this is somebody truly sacrificing for Christ. And the Muslims were trying to use it as a, you know, see what happens to Christians. And yet these guys were praising God as they died and had the opposite effect on what they, what they thought it would have. You know, are we ready for such a move? Are we ready to say, God, I trust you no matter what. No matter what comes my way, I'm going to trust you. And we need to be there. We need to be so deep in his word, so much understanding who he is and how much he loves us that no matter what happens, we say, God, you've got a good thing coming out of this. You're going to make good come out of it. All right. Verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations that came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whosoever will not come up from all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall no rain, shall be no rain. And if a family of Egypt shall go up not up and come not that, that have no rain, there shall be a plague wherein the Lord shall smite the heathen that come not to keep the feast of the tabernacles. There shall be a punishment of Egypt and a punishment of all nations that come not to keep the feast of tabernacles. So for the millennial kingdom, the feast of the tabernacles will be held. 
Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is the return of the king on one side, but it is also the celebration of the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And on the Feast of Tabernacles, the people give a sacrifice of God to God for thanksgiving purposes. And for the week of that celebration, they step outside their houses, build these, build these lean-tos, and they sleep in, in, in huts for, in their yards for, for that week because they're remembering the wandering in the wilderness. And then God says that everybody that's left in the world will come to Jerusalem every year to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, that's a lot of people coming to the world every year. But it also, we have to figure that there's not that many people left. Revelation tells us that there's only going to be about one-third of the population of the world at that time. And at the last battle, there's going to be a, all the, most of the armies and fighting men of age are going to die. So there's going to be a very small population. And anybody who's taken the mark of the beast is thrown into, into uh, hell until the final judgment, which is most of the population. So there's going to be a very small population left at the start of the tribulation period. But we do know by reading this that there will be people that have gone and not taken the mark of the beast. How they've survived, I don't know. Why they survived, why they didn't take it, I don't know. Will it be, be because of the evangelist? We don't know. Some of them are just stubborn. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to do what, I, even, what the, even this government tells me to do. We don't know. But there will be a small population left in this world, around the world, that are now going to be visiting every year to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles. And if they don't come, God will judge them. Won't, won't give them rain. They won't be able to grow crops and probably other plagues that aren't even mentioned. Because that's what he says. If they don't come, there shall, have, and there shall be a plague or a slaughter again if they don't come. We're told that Jesus reigns during the millennial kingdom with an iron scepter. You're going to do things because he said so. And a lot of it, I kind of almost picture that a lot of people's free will is going to be subjected to the king. You are going to do things. You are going to do it his way. Now, good news for us, we're in our glorified bodies. We're there with him in Jerusalem. We're helping to reign. We don't have the sin nature anymore. We're going to be doing what's right by, by willful desire because we made our choice beforehand and have our glorified bodies to reign with him. The rest of the world is going to be forced to be obedient. If obedient. Well, if they're not, they're going to be enforced, right? They're going to be judged. Well, if they don't, they're going to be killed. So, I mean, that's not... <laughs> you know, basically, they're being forced. <laughs> May, some do, some don't. Some do, some don't. We'll have, during the, during the, millennial, uh, during the tribulation period, 144,000 Jewish believers will evangelize. There will be that remnant of people that come out of the tribulation period. They're looking forward to this event of Jesus ruling. You've got a lot of people that are still rejecting God, but for some reason didn't take the mark of the beast. Now, that means that they're pretty rebellious. 
Right? They're not turning to God. They're not turning to Satan, and they're, and they're just being rebellious. And now they're coming into the millennial kingdom with, without having a heart toward God. You also have the fact that during the millennial kingdom, children are going to be born. And how short is human memory? Probably just as short then as it will be uh, at, as it is now. Uh, granted, you may have somebody living two, three hundred years will tell you, hey, I remember when all this happened and going, uh-huh, right, you're a little senile, you're getting, you're getting a little old, we don't believe you. All right? What happened after the flood? Very quickly, within a couple hundred years, you have Nimrod coming to power. Noah has only died recently. We have uh, Eber, who's really close to Noah and would have had firsthand information about the flood, and nobody is believing what he has to say about the flood. They're not believing the flood. They're, they're serving other gods in Nimrod's day. You know, how short are human memories? You know, our politicians count on us for getting things after a few, few months. I can vote for whatever I want as long as it's a few months before the election so that I don't, so people will forget what I voted for and vote for me anyway. You know, and we, over and over again, as we look at things, if you know history, you can almost guarantee you, you know exactly what's going to happen as we walk down the path that others have walked in front, down before. And, you know, there's the old statement that history repeats itself, and the newest statement is history never repeats itself. And, you're, and on one side, they're correct. It doesn't repeat itself exactly, but it sure does repeat itself. You know, if you know enough history, you see the rise and fall of nations, and you see what makes them fall, and you see what, you know, how, how things happen, and you see how things were done. And when you watch Hitler's rise of power, and you see what's being done in the world today, it's scary. It's scary at how much we are duplicating his rise to power. It's scary when we look at what Stalin did to come to power, you know, and, and watch us going down that same path. And you're going, we're walking toward a dictatorship and nobody sees it. Why? Because they do not teach history anymore. Our schools teach social studies. And social studies is somebody's interpretation of history and why things happen by their thought process. They don't teach history anymore. And it is sad as we walk down the same paths. And people have always commented right here, as we go through the Old Testament, and it's like, if we were to switch the names of these people and, uh, and say this was Congress rather than, rather than this king's court, or the king was, the, was the, our current leaders, would go, yeah, we could picture exactly the same things happening. Nothing has changed under the sun and everything keeps repeating itself. Not the same exact process, not the exact, but the, what leads to it is the same. The controls that get led to it, the giving up of power that leads to it is always the same. And you can see the similarities all over the place. You know, uh, you know in America now, we have the home, Homeland Security Department. Hitler called his the brown shirts, and I don't remember what Stalin called his innocuous home, home people that then became the secret services of their people. The Homeland Security will become the, the secret service, SS, whatever you want to call, of the fallen dictatorship of America. It will. 
because that is what's going to happen. You can see it. It's the same exact plan that every other dictator has used. It's a matter of time. And we will see our nation fall. Barring God doing a miracle on it, and I just don't see that miracle happening, it might. But I'm looking at history and saying, we're a fallen nation. We're well on the path to a fallen nation. And it's scary when you look at it. And it's, what's really scary is how blind most people are to it. They just don't know history. And here we're seeing this whole process. There are going to be people growing up during that thousand years that are born. Those first couple generations might believe mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. They're seeing the devastation. They're, they're seeing the broken cities. They're, they're, they're seeing all this. Two, three hundred years into it, four hundred years into it. What are these fables that you're talking about? We don't see any destruction. The animals are nice. You're talking about animals that were mean to each other and, and attacked people, and you're talking about battles. What are you talking about? You guys, we don't know what drugs you grew up, grew up on, but you, know, you guys don't know what you're talking about. And there will come these times where people are now going to say, I want to sin rather than being obedient to the God that rescued us. Get closer to the end of the thousand years, and you're going to have people with that ancient memory that you're talking about. You know, maybe it did happen, but I sure don't believe you. You know, in America, we don't even know our history from 250, 300 years ago. Unless you're a real history buff, our history is being changed. And most people don't even understand or know American history. And that's only 300 years. Imagine what it would be after eight, nine hundred years. This is the period that we're looking at. There will be those people saying, I'm not going to Jerusalem. I'm not, I'm not making that long trip every year. I'm not going to abandon my, my home and my business for a trip to Jerusalem to go sacrifice a, an animal and hang out in a, in a tabernacle, you know, in a, in a lean-to for a week. And they'll stay, and God says, fine, here's your judgment. No rain, plagues, slaughter, iron, iron fist, and saying you're not going to be obedient. Fine, you can go join the lake of fire. You can go join join your bud, you know, the other rebellious people in hell. But it also helps us explain why, when Satan comes back at the end of the thousand years, how he finds people that are willing to go against God, because they've been wanting to anyway. They have a sin nature. They're born with a sin nature. They're living in utopia. But there's still that utopia that God says, you're going to come and worship me. You're going to, you're going to come to Jerusalem one time a year and worship. <laughs> and there are going to be people saying, uh-uh, no way, no how. And God's going to judge them. Now imagine those people that are judged, their family who was maybe in the same ball play are going to be very angry at God that their relatives died at a younger age than they're supposed to have because they were disobedient to God. And if they don't have a real heart for God, they're going to turn, their, their heart's going to turn, and they're going to be waiting for that opportunity to turn against God because of their disobedient heart. Well, yeah, why did God let that happen? Not that, not that they deserved it, but, you know, God must be awful. Look what he did to them just because they didn't want to go to Jerusalem this year. God, God killed them. Yeah. And this will be the attitude that a lot of people will have. And they're, 
You know, and this is why I'm, you know, I've had many parents over the years try to tell their kids, you go tell them that you're sorry. Now I understand what they're doing and I think it's a good thing on one thing, but to make a kid tell you that they're sorry, you get this, I'm sorry. What are you sorry for? Mom and dad told me I had to say it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not feeling anything. I'm just doing what I was told to do. Yeah, I, I got caught and I have to tell you I'm sorry. That's where many of these people are going to be at that time. You know, well, we're kind of sorry that, you know, that we got caught and that God judged us, but we're, you know, I really don't want to go to, I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't want to have, do it no way, no how. The consequences may be too high and most people are going to go, but they're going to go with the wrong heart attitude. And this is what I said, you know, coming to church is a great place to be. But if you're coming to church just to be at church, and your heart's not in the idea of worship and listening and, and being taught, then you come for the wrong reason. You're not going to get anything out of it. You've just wasted an hour, hour and a half, two hours, however, depending on how much of the church you come to, you just wasted time because you're not getting anything out of it. And Satan is real good to make sure that we're in a bad mood when we come. You know, I can't tell you growing up how many times my kids would start fighting right before it's time to go to church. Or my wife and I would have a fight right before it was time to go to church. And you'd get to church, how are you doing? Oh, we're doing just fine. We're, we're just doing fine. We're doing, we're doing wonderful. You know, I'm not in a mood to worship. I'm still thinking about the fight I just had, but I'm going to tell everybody I'm fine and I'm going to sing the songs and pretend to listen and, and not be ministered to. And put the smile on and not tell anybody about how bad, how bad my days is. You know, but that's exactly what happens. And Satan is good about getting us out of the attitude of worship. And he's going to, you know, and right now Satan is not even in it. We've got mankind doing these problems. Yeah, Satan's chained during this period of time. But, you know, we have a problem in and our, in of ourselves. We had the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the, and the pride of life. We will sin even without Satan's help. We don't need any help to sin. Now, Satan can arrange for us to have extra help. The lust of the eyes, and he brings just the right thing into our eyesight. Uh, you know, uh, you know he'll, he'll help us, but we really don't need his help. We're going to sin on our own easily. And during the millennial kingdom, people are still going to sin because they have a sin nature. Now, I do believe that they'll be able to turn to Christ and put their whole life into him and be filled with the Spirit and, and live a closer to perfect life than, than the rest of them that aren't putting in. It'll be just like our day. Some people are going to follow him and be convicted of their sin and try to, try to be obedient. There are going to be those that aren't following him, don't want to follow him, and they're going to sin as much as they can get away with, which might not be very much <laughs> during the millennial kingdom. You know, uh, I almost think, I really do believe there'll be this kind of thought police. You know, no, you're not going to sin. You're not going to be allowed to sin during this period of time because, you know, and how strict that would be, I don't know. But God is the ultimate can be the ultimate thought police because he knows our innermost thoughts. So he can stop people from sinning even before they sin, even though they want to, which will give them another reason why when Satan says, here's our rebellion, we're going we're gonna to win. 
I, I have failed for 7,000 years, but all of a sudden, we're going to win this time. <laughs> you know, he's not going to say I failed for 7,000 years, but, you know, but he's going to come in telling people, I can win. We can win. If we just band together, <laughs> we can win. And they're going to have forgotten that last battle where the entire fighting nation was wiped out with just a spoken word. Yeah, because they're not going to... Well, but again, how... Even for us in our generation, how many of us really remember the horror of Hiroshima? If you've done any kind of study, you kind of have some concept of it. But the average person has no concept of what happened and that wasn't very long ago. When was it? 70 years ago. 75 years ago. 45? 45. 45 or 46, right? Uh, and it wasn't that long ago, and we can't remember the horror of it. What's going to happen after several hundred years, and people are going, well, you know, our, our forefathers many, many years ago, generations ago, they, they were fighting against God, and they just were melted away. Uh-huh, yeah, right, you know. You know, sure, that's what happened. The horror of it, though, will be totally gone, even if they believe it, the horror of it. And it'll be just like us. Where's the God that did these things? Where's the God that did these? And we, even to this day, we as Christians sometimes forget we still serve the God who does miracles because we don't see them every day. And because if we saw them every day, they wouldn't be miracles anymore. They would be normals. <laughs> You know, miracles by definition are something that don't happen very often. Because otherwise we just say, well, this is normal. And this is the problem. Sometimes we as Christians, when God is blessing us, we can get to the point where we forget that we're being blessed. <laughs> and we start thinking, this is normal. This is normal life. And it really can be for us, but we need to also remember that it's his blessing. <laughs> Our normal life as his blessed children is blessings. And if we forget it, he'll pull the blessings from us for a little while and remind us that they are blessings. And this is what's going to happen during this period of time. People are going to forget the blessings of God that are flowing. And the last two, last two verses. In that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls of the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Ju Judah shall be holiness to, unto the Lord of hosts, and all they that sacrifice shall come and take them and seethe therein, and in that day there shall be no more Canaanites in the house of the Lord of hosts. This is kind of an interesting statement because God is saying everything in Jerusalem is going to be declared holy. Holy. And it's kind of interesting in the descriptions. He means Everything. You know, Jerusalem, apparently, even to this day, people say when they go to Jerusalem, they can feel something about God. One day, I'd love to get there just to see what it's like, you know, just to, just to, just to see. But even just to see history come alive in the, in the Holy Land would be a wonderful thing. To see the places where Jesus walked, to see the places where Jesus taught. But in this case, he says... On the horse's bells will be holiness unto the Lord. And you'll note that that is all in caps. All right. This is the same statement from Exodus 28:36. On, on the high priest miter has the brass plate that says holiness unto the Lord. 
then that same statement will be placed upon the bells of the horses and literally everywhere. God's holiness will be eminent when you go to Jerusalem. Jesus Christ is dwelling there. He's ruling there. God himself is ruling in Jerusalem with all of his holy, righteous nature in that area. And we think about this. What happened to Moses when he spent 40 days and 40 nights with God on the mountainside and came down? His face shone because of the holiness that he, that he had. So much so that it scared the people. Now, I have no idea how shiny he had to be, but he got that by being in God's presence. The Shekinah glory. The, glory. Uh, the great glory of God. Yeah, and that fell upon the, the tabernacle on more than one occasion. So much so that the people were afraid to go to the temple because it shone so brightly. And we can feel it if you've ever been in the presence of God and kind of you begin to feel that. You kind of know what that was like or a glimpse of it. There's been times when I, for just a second or two, felt like I was in God's presence so completely and just felt totally different. Now, it felt like a long time when it was there, but no time at all had passed when I, when I came back to where, where I was at. But this is going to be Jerusalem. The holiness of God to the point of overpowering almost because of his great expression of his love and holiness. Apparently. He's made sacred. Jerusalem will be made sacred and holy. And people are going to come there to worship. Now, will they come literally to Jerusalem or to Israel? I don't know. It says Jerusalem. But I don't know that there's room in Jerusalem for all the, all the people of the world, even though, it's, even though there's going to be a very small percentage of people left. It's still a lot of people going to Jerusalem for, for that, so it may be the entire region that is going to draw the people for this celebration uh, just because the sheer numbers of people. Maybe it'll make big sky, you know, skyscrapers in Jerusalem. I don't know. Uh, you know here's, your, here's your place to stay for the, for the tabernacle. <laughs> yeah, the city limits could be the entire, the entire nation. Who knows? You know, God can do what he wants. I'm not going to limit him. You know, he rules the whole world, so the whole world is Israel, technically. So he could make the entire borders of Jerusalem, the entire, what we now call Israel. Um, so I'm not going to rule that out. But, you've, you know, but the city of Jerusalem obviously is going to be a special place. It always has been God's special place. He has chosen Jerusalem to put his glory and has laid his glory out. And here it says everybody will be one. One people one world under one king what people think they want one world government what they're going to think they want during the tribulation period except they picked the wrong leader to be their governor they have an egomaniac ruling them instead of the servant who loves us and wants what's best for us and this is the problem with any idea of one world government you know you can't corrupt God because he's all-powerful to begin with. So power isn't going to corrupt him because he has all the power anyway and he still loves us. But when man 
gets power, they get corrupted. When Satan finally gets the power to rule this world, he's going to get corrupted. He's already corrupted, but he's going to get more corrupted and, and, egomania, and become an egomaniac out of it. God comes and he rules with benevolence, loves people so much that he wants the best and has the power to give it to them. Satan is going to try to grab all the power and keep all the power because he knows he doesn't deserve it and doesn't have it. He's going to fight hard to keep that power and be very destructive when it starts slipping, anytime it starts to slip out of his hand, just as any dictator becomes destructive when, it starts, when their power starts to slip. God, being all-powerful, will not have his power slip. So he can be totally benevolent and kind to his people. And there will all be one generally happy family. <laughs> There'll be those who aren't happy with it. You know, because there's that sin nature that says, I want what I want. I do not want to bow my heart even to a perfect ruling king who's given me everything that I need to be happy, giving me rain in season, giving me good, good crops, giving me properties, you know, no, no, no animals that are attacking me, no, no sin, no, no, no plagues and all these things, and yet there are going to be people that say, I'm still not happy because God is not dwelling in them. And this will be the ultimate attack of man's greatest thought. If we just lived in utopia, if we just lived in a perfect world, we would all be good. There would not be anybody bad if we lived in a perfect world. That's Satan's last lie. The millennial kingdom is all against that last lie. God says, I'm going to make everything perfect for you. You're going to have rain, you're going to have food, you're going to have peace, you're not going to have wars, and you're still not going to be turning to me and being happy. Because every single person has a God-shaped hole in their, in their life that if God doesn't fill it, they will not be happy. Ultimately. They might be happy for a few minutes, just like, you know, when the world gets the new car, the new house, the new job, the new promotion, there's a temporary happiness where they're, they're happy, and then they find out it didn't fill me. It didn't fill this great big gaping hole. And they're unhappy again, looking for the next thing that's going to happen. For a thousand years, you're going to be this perfect world, and they're still, if they don't turn to God, not going to be happy in a perfect world where, where they can have anything they need to be happy. They still won't be happy because they don't have God in their hearts. Now, some will. Don't get me wrong. There'll be those who follow God and have him in their heart, and, and they're seeing him. But, you know, they're not having to walk by faith. They see God <laughs> sitting on the throne, ruling. They're not having to walk by faith, and they're still going to reject him. Which also goes against so many people who say, well, if I was just at, if I was just in Israel, seeing the ten plagues against Egypt, I would definitely believe. No, you wouldn't. You'd have been just like... If I had walked through the Red Sea, I would really have believed God. No, you would have been just like the rest of the Israelites. You know, if we're not going to believe, we're not going to believe. And if we are going to believe, it's going to be easy to believe. And this is why it's so important for us to stand by faith and say, God, I believe you. 
And then he fills us, and then he, he fills that emptiness, and he gives us a peace that passes understanding that he's in control. He gives us the strength to be able to go through our hardships if we will just turn over our life to him during that hardship. At every hardship, we have a crossroad to make. Am I going to let my flesh be crucified and walk where God wants me to in his strength? Or am I going to do it my own way? And my own way will always get me in trouble. And it's going to look really good at the time that I make that decision. Well, if I made this decision, they might have thrown me in the, in the furnace. I'm going to say no and go this way. And the consequences for making that decision will not be good. The consequences for going the other direction may seem terrible, but God's in it. What's the worst thing up? I burn up and go to heaven. What's the next best thing? God delivers me so that no smoke sticks on me and I get to be a witness to him. Either way, I win. I die, I win. I really win because I get to go to heaven. If I don't die, I have to come back and live a little longer as his, as his witness, which is good too, but it's, you know, the alternative, you know, the funny thing for us as Christians, the, altern the, the alternative to death is more pain and suffering. Uh, you know, we should be looking at this. God, I want the opportunity to die for you. Give me that opportunity. And then let him take us. Then our name will be written just as it was in the Fox's Book of Martyrs where people are remembering our honor of God as we die. Yeah. And then I really do, I've, you know, most of you know, I recommend, you know, if you have any problem with understanding the power of martyrdom, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a hard book to read, it really is, especially when you get to the Middle Ages. Man was, man was cruel back in the first part of it, but man was really cruel during the Middle Ages. You know, they had, they had things where they ripped people's stomachs out, you know, through their throats. <laughs> you know, in the past, they just crushed people or burnt them or put them on a cross. I wouldn't want to do I wouldn't want to do it, but yet, are we ready? Am I ready to say, God, whatever you want, I'm ready to do? That takes knowing him in a special way. That means know, that I know you so well, God, that I'm going to trust you no matter what. It is our faith, but it's also God's grace that will, if we have enough faith to stand on his grace, he will give us the grace to go through whatever we go through. Yeah. You know, Corey Tenboom asked one time to her grand, her, her father, you know, she was worried about dying, and he said, and his answer was, when do I give you your ticket on the, to get on the train? He goes, just before we get on, he goes, that's what God does when we have to face problems. And I like that. When it's time to face the problem, God is standing there with the ticket if we're really to take that ticket and say, God, I'm ready now to do whatever you've just empowered me to do. And that's why I say, sometimes I wonder, will I be ready to do it? And, I, and one side of me says, yes, absolutely, 100%. The other side says, we'll see when we get there. You know, and in the first century church, you know, there were many Christians that would go up to the altar of the Caesar and drop in a grain or you know, a couple grains of, into the fire, not because they were worshiping, but they didn't want to die. They knew that God would forgive them and everything, but they... And they regretted it, and it was hard for them, and people didn't trust them when they, when they would do things like that. The other Christians wouldn't trust them. You know, and some refused to make that sacrifice and were killed. 
how much trust do we have in God when, when we're facing death? Will all come down to what do we believe about death as a Christian? It really does. Do I truly 100% believe that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? When I'm facing that choice will be, do I really truly believe it? And it's, and it's challenged in some ways simple before that. We lose, we lose a loved one who goes to heaven. How do we look at it? When my sister passed away, I told the pastor, I cannot be sad for her. She's in heaven. And he goes, I understand. Now, the rest of my family did not understand my attitude. Most of my family does not see death the way I do. But I knew my sister was saved. I know where she's at. I could not be sad for her passing away. You know, now, when somebody a lot closer to me dies, I don't know. That'll be a challenge, but I still think I'm going to hold that same thought process. They're saved. They went into heaven. Well, there's a, there's a chance. Yeah. That's one thing. They're good. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm jealous that she would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, that could be a true thing. They were jealous that we're not there. Yeah. All right, we're going to end here. So next week, we will start the book of Haggai. It's two chapters long, so you can get a good, good head start. It'll take you a, a couple minutes to read it. <laughs> It'll probably take us a couple weeks, a few weeks to get through it. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you for your picture of the millennial kingdom and your victory at the tribulation period, Lord. Help us to learn to trust you in all that we do and to see that you are still powerful. You still have plans for us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.